views and opinions expressed here are our own and do not reflect the views and opinions of the Department of Defense, Combined Arms Center, or Army University. Chris, and welcome to this holiday episode of To Be Published, a podcast that provides organizational leaders with the tools to integrate and synchronize, sustain it, and to generate combat power. The clip you heard in the introduction was a message recorded by Marion Gerfine and her family some 70 years ago in 1951 for her husband, Lieutenant Colonel Joseph Gerfine, who was fighting in the Korean War. Lieutenant Colonel Gerfine had been deployed for over a year recently earned his second Silver Star at Heartbreak Ridge, was serving in the 23rd Infantry Regiment as the executive officer, and was currently serving in the second of three wars that he would eventually fight in. As we get ready to go on our holiday break here at the Command and General Staff College, we wanted to take a moment and reflect on the history of logistics and combat during the holidays. The holidays are a time of reflection for all of us, regardless of faith or religion, and we should remember that we have soldiers, sailors, marines, airmen, coast guardsmen, and guardians deployed around the world in the service of their country, missing out on the holidays. The season is a time for hope, hope for peace, hope for being back home, and hope that the coming year will be better. Today we'll talk about how the Army works to sustain the morale of troops and maintain combat power throughout the holiday season. This is the first of a two-part special. This week, we'll discuss history up to the Korean War, and next week, we'll hear stories from soldiers who've served in various conflicts from Vietnam until today. Army training publication 4TAC-41 tells us that American special events and holidays do not stop when soldiers deploy. Special meals like the Super Bowl and the Army birthday, and holiday meals like New Year's Day, Independence Day, Thanksgiving, and Christmas are American traditions. Getting special meals for these events during deployments is a matter of troop morale, and so the theater must plan for them. The theater coordinates menu requirements for these meals with DLA troop support up to 180 days in advance. Now, that's what the doctrine tells us, and we know that we have to do the best that we can uh, to get these meals out to troops. But what we'll see throughout this episode as we talk about the history of warfighting through the holidays is that that's not always possible, especially in large-scale combat operations. And so to do that and to talk about uh, this dynamic, again, in this first episode from World War I up until uh, Korea, we have our very own Dr. Kyle Hatzinger. Kyle got his Ph.D. in history from the University of North Texas and is an Army Force Management Officer. Kyle, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. This will be a, a lot of fun. We're mixing history, sustainment, and Christmas all in one. So I'm 
Very excited to be here. So, Kyle, how important has logistics contributions been to a successful Christmas uh, throughout the Army? Well, I'm glad you started with that ATP of here's what's supposed to happen, because if we look at the Valley Forge encampment and the troops wake up on Christmas Day and there's no meat in the encampment, according to the quartermaster history. And it wasn't because there was just no meat in the United States, but the quartermaster department, which was two and a half years old at this point, couldn't move provisions across the states like we would today. You know, because you had individual contracts with each state. States had their own wagons and everything like that. So it was a real problem. And so after Valley Forge, which, you know, that whole uh, encampment was problematic for provisions, uh, Nathaniel Green, who was the third quartermaster at the time, he organizes depots as a means to kind of get around this problem and have a, a the Army's own supply line. And so it really, you know, Christmas is, is just one problematic aspect of Valley Forge, but it, it, it is a catalyst to, you know, help fix the Army's supply system. So certainly important to soldiers' morale because, it, you know, you see that problem every other day of, of provisions, but then on Christmas it, it kind of takes an extra hit. It really kind of exacerbates it uh, just because of, like you said, the holidays. It is Christmas. Soldiers... I want something more to keep them fighting. And we talk a lot about combat power on this show uh, and, you know, generating and maintaining combat power. And combat power starts with the soldier. Absolutely. Uh, starts with morale. Absolutely. Uh, so it wasn't just limited to the U.S., though. No, not at all. I think if you go into any country, um, you would see this same sort of, you know, how the holidays impact individual soldiers or civilians. You know, as you talked about hope, I was thinking of a, a picture that I've seen cropping up on the internet over the last couple of weeks as, as Hanukkah was going on. And it was a picture, it was taken in 1932 by Rachel Posner, and it was of uh, her family's menorah, which was sitting on a windowsill. But as you look out past the menorah, out the window across the street, hanging off that building is a Nazi flag. And you know, as the article accompanying the photo Describe that if you flip the picture over on the back written as you translated it was our light will outlast their flag and so this idea of hope this idea of peace it really you know it, it, I don't think it matters what religion you are or if you even have a religion as you said it, it's just that special time where you can think of being with family being with friends you know, the, the end of the year, so you're kind of taking stock of where you've come and then where you're going to go the next year. So that idea of hope, uh, I think, transcends um, any country. And so for World War I, um, I brought in a letter that was written by a British soldier um, because he was, he was actually on the front lines. Uh, American experience is odd. In 1917, most soldiers are still in training camps. 1918, the war's over. So it was a little... A little difficult to find a letter, but we found one of uh, Lieutenant Alfred Chatters that he wrote during the 1914 Christmas truce, which is really one of those iconic moments when you think of Christmas in the trenches in World War I. Uh, so I wanted to start with that as an, uh, as an idea of what is Christmas like overseas. Lieutenant Alfred Duggan Chatter, 25th of December, 1914. Dearest Mother, 
I'm writing this in the trenches in my dugout, with a wood fire going and plenty of straw. It is rather cosy, although it is freezing hard and real Christmas weather. I think I've seen one of the most extraordinary sights today that anyone has ever seen. About ten o'clock this morning, I was peeping over the parapet when I saw a German waving his arms, and presently, two of them got out of their trenches and came towards ours. We were just going to fire on them when we saw they had no rifles, so one of our men went out to meet them, and in about two minutes the ground between the two lines of trenches was swarming with men and officers of both sides, shaking hands and wishing each other a happy Christmas. This continued for about half an hour, when most of our men were ordered back to the trenches. For the rest of the day, nobody has fired a shot, and men have been wandering about at will, on top of the parapet and carrying straw and firewood about in the open. We have also had joint burial parties with a service for some of the dead, some German and some ours, who are lying out between the lines. This extraordinary truce has been quite impromptu. There was no previous arrangement, and of course, it has been decided that there was not to be any secession of hostilities. I went out myself and shook hands with several of their officers and men. From what I gathered, most of them would be as glad to get home as we should be. We've had our pipes playing all day, and everyone has been wandering about in the open, unmolested, but not, of course, as far as the enemy lines. The truce will probably go on until someone is foolish enough to let off his rifle. We nearly messed it up this afternoon by one of our fellows letting off his rifle skyward by mistake, but they did not seem to notice, so it did not matter. I've been taking advantage of the truce to improve my dugout, which I share with D.M. Bain, the Scottish Rugger International, an excellent fellow. We put on a proper roof this morning. Now we've got a tiled fireplace and brushwood and straw on the floor. We leave the trenches tomorrow, and I shan't be sorry, as it is much too cold to be pleasant at night. 27th December. I'm writing this back in the billets. The same business continues yesterday, and we had another parley with the Germans in the middle. We exchanged cigarettes and autographs, and some more people took photos. I don't know how long it will go on for. I believe it was supposed to stop yesterday, but we can hear no firing going along the front today except a little distant shelling. We are, at any rate, having another truce on New Year's Day, as the Germans want to see how the photos come out. Yesterday was lovely, in the morning and I went for several quite long walks about the lines. It is difficult to realise what that means, but of course in the ordinary way there is no sign of life above ground, and everyone who puts his head up gets shot at. And, and as you mentioned, um, it's not being the, limited to the U.S., nor is the poignancy uh, that's found within these letters. And Chatters, who's uh, with the Gordon Highlander, 2nd Battalion Gordon Highlanders, he mentions D.M. Bain, who was uh, you know, his foxhole buddy or shares his dugout in this case. Uh, David McLaren Bain, this was his last Christmas. He was killed on the 3rd of June, 1915. So it just kind of highlights that we have this hope for peace, but it's not always possible in wartime. And certainly not in the immediacy. No. 
Yeah. No. Right. So let's talk about World War II then. Huge American involvement, huge global involvement, right, spanning the globe. Uh, so how did Christmas look then? Well, it, it doesn't start off good. Uh, you know, 1942 is that real first Christmas for the United States that it's starting to um, try and push the axis back, um, both in North Africa and then in the South Pacific. Particularly in the South Pacific, it, it's one of those interesting aspects you don't think about is chickens and turkeys, you know, the, the kind of cornerstone for a Christmas meal. Those are actually delicacies in Australia. So to find them was very difficult. And most of the commercial examples were unbled and incompletely plucked. So if you imagine, and you may have found one at a discount grocery where you still have some of the feathers in there and it's just, yeah, it's, it's not appetizing. No, not at all. Just gross. And so a lot of soldiers and Marines in, in the South Pacific uh, had just come off Guadalcanal or, or starting to build up in New Zealand and Australia. They're looking at these, and, and most just don't even eat it. Um, but by 1944, you know, not only quality, because of the quartermaster corps at this time, really, you know, how do we solve this problem? And then the supply lines, you know, starting to get an idea of how do we move things um, across this expanse of the Pacific. Not only are soldiers now enjoying better meals, but even just you know, as you look at numbers, 240,000 pounds of chicken and turkey in 1942. That's up to over 2 million two years later in 1944. So 1944 Christmas is really the pinnacle of, of the logistics uh, network that spans the globe at this point. And you know, the Army is not only taking care of these meals, um, but we also enlist the help of really the, the citizens back home. And you probably see posters, if you do some uh, research online, of how, how citizens could send mail at, at Christmas time. And mm -hmm. it, it would outline it, you know, make sure between October, September or October, I think it's between September, mid-September and mid-October. That's the main time if you want your mail to make it overseas by the holidays. And so you're writing your Christmas cards, you know, as, as it's still before uh, Halloween even. Uh, to make sure that we get them out in time and get into the system. Right, right. Yeah, Oct it's October to November. I'm sorry, I, I misspoke. But, but yeah, still before Halloween. So, you know, in some states, you don't even have leaves that are changing yet. And you're, you have to think about Christmas and, and what do you want your intended recipient to receive. But, you know, as we kind of mentioned um, previously, this is not always a great, uh, not always a great thing, I guess is the best way to say it, just because... The war's still going on, and there's a really heartbreaking series of photos um, that were taken in New York City at the, um, the embarkation port of packages that were actually returning from, in this case, the European theater, and they're all stamped return to sender because the intended recipients either marked as missing or deceased, and so those families would actually, by regulation, receive that package back. So they've received word at this point that their soldier, sailor, airman is missing or deceased, but then they're also receiving that mail that they sent and those wishes for a Merry Christmas or a Happy Hanukkah that will not be received. Hard times. Very much so. Um, but, you know, this is kind of a two-pronged process. Um, you know, not only that mail, but also in 1944, by this point, we're providing 24 million meals per day 
around the world. So it was Christmas 1944, 24 million Christmas meals. And that is all around the world. And, and one place I want to highlight just to give our, our audience an idea of this expanse is we're going to go to Moratai Island, which is 7,000 miles from San Francisco. And we're going to hear from uh, Lieutenant Gilbert Howland, who is a navigator with the 72nd Bomb Squadron, 5th Bomb Group. And he writes home on the 22nd of December, 1944, describing the packages that he's received ahead of the Christmas holiday. December 22nd, 1944. Dear Mother and Dad, got your letters of November 30th and December 3rd today. Was sorry to hear that Pop didn't get a deer during the season. Got a couple of packages came yesterday. One from Uncle Bert and Aunt Helen with a gift from Grandma Helen of a washcloth. It was soap from Aunt Helen and Uncle Bert. The other package was from Gert Wheeler. I got a gift from Elaine the other day, and probably you know what it was, an identification bracelet. It was just what I needed. I've been thinking of writing home for one, but you see I won't have to now. I have already a card from Aunt May and Aunt Laura, also one from Gert, one from Carlita, and one from the two girls that had the apartment across from Grace and George in L.A. Take in all, I'm not doing too bad. If I keep getting things, I will be independent of the mess hall altogether. I have been in the sack most of the day, not sick, just sleepy. Had to get up pretty early yesterday and then didn't get to sleep till late last night. Well, I guess that is all for this time. Be seeing you. Love, Bush. And then we've got a, a second letter. Um, so the, the first letter describes those you know, great packages. And then on the 27th, Howland writes home to uh, describe the, the Christmas feast that he enjoys uh, on the 25th. December 27th, 1944. Dear mother and dad, well, here I am again, all rested up from eating so much on Christmas day. I really ate turkey more than most any two other people. We had roast turkey, dressing, potatoes, peas, pickle relish, ripe olives, peaches and cream, and pumpkin pie. As usual, I ate so much I didn't have room for pie. Then the squadron had this big dinner at night, so I ate again. We had turkey, dressing, potatoes, green salad made of lettuce, tomatoes, hard-boiled eggs, and salad dressing. Cake, peaches, and punch. Then later in the evening, one of the fellows in the area here made a deal with the season and got five gallons of ice cream, and I guess I ate pretty near a pint of it. So you see, I really ate on Christmas. I got a card from Miss Farr on Christmas, along with yours and several others. I got a box from Uncle Bunny and Aunt Dot last night, and also one from Dr. Candy. Well, things seem to be going about the same, not much doing. So not much to write about. We'll sign off for now. Love, Bush. So that was a good 
you know, the idea of the South Pacific in 1944. I'd like to have been uh, in the South Pacific then. Absolutely, because if we go around, well, there's there's problems. Yeah, but certainly. <laughs> as we go to the other side of the world, Christmas 1944, uh, the Army is actually engaged in the largest battle in its history, you know, what we know as the Battle of the Bulge uh, today, the German counteroffensive that had began in, on the 16th of December and was still largely going on, um, on you know, when his Christmas rolls around. And you might know Bing Crosby's I'll Be Home for Christmas. Um, that was written in 1943, actually from the perspective of a serviceman who's writing home because as, as the line goes, I'll be home for Christmas if only in my but dreams. if only in my dreams. There you go. And one of the neat little stories behind that is one of Bing's nephews later said that he had asked Bing Crosby, you know, what was the hardest or most difficult um, show that you had ever given? And he said that it was actually December of 44. He was on a USO tour. Uh, Bob Hope, Andrew's sisters were there. But he's singing White Christmas, I'll Be Home for Christmas, in front of all these GIs who just have tears streaming down their faces, knowing that, indeed, they will only be home for Christmas in their dreams. And this is only uh, just a couple weeks before that the Battle of the Bulge commences. And so a lot of them were uh, very quickly consumed with staying alive rather than those thoughts of home. And, uh, you know, one of those... Soldiers who was engaged in that was uh, Corsicana, Texas native, uh, Private Billy L. Bradford, uh, L Company, 395th Infantry of the uh, 99th Infantry Division. He's one of those units that is just bearing the brunt of this counteroffensive near Hoffen, Germany. Uh, in the Ardennes. In the Ardennes, absolutely. And on the 20th, he wrote home um, describing you know, what was going on and his thoughts uh, as Christmas was right around the corner. I'll be home for Christmas. You can plan on me. Please have snow. December 20th, 1944. Dear Mother, Dad, and Bets, only five more shooting days till Christmas and all is well. Gee, it's sure strange no holly or Christmas trees, but what can one expect better than a bed and food enough to fill a stomach? For the first time in a month, the sun is out and it looks nice. You can't imagine how things look in the light after so much cloudiness. To me, even Germany looks swell today. As yet, I have received only two of your packages, but I am glad they aren't numerous right now. We are so busy these days. With the score five to nothing, I'll say goodbye till I get time again. Love, Billy. And so, no hot meal. Uh, for Billy Bradford there on the 25th in Christmas, engaged in large-scale combat operations. You know, I, I'd like to think that it, the division and the Corps did the best that they could uh, to get it through there. And, in fact, I think we have a, another letter. Yeah, we've got a series of letters from Bradford. He uh, was a, a pretty pro prolific writer, and it's interesting. He wrote wrote his letter, and then on the back of the envelope, he would write the, the day it was actually sent or he dropped it in the mailbag. Then if you flip it over, you can see when did the APO actually stamp it. And so that letter that we just heard, he wrote that on the 20th, but it wasn't actually stamped by the APO until the 30th of December. So you can see what combat operations do when you're trying to get mail back and forth. And so exactly what you said, no hot meal, 
uh, for L Company on the 25th. Um, but Bradford did write home, but again, this wasn't actually stamped by the APO until well after, but he describes his Christmas day. December 25th, 1944, Germany. Dear mother, dad, and Betty. Well, here it is again, Christmas day. Quite different from last, isn't it? But even though I am not with you today, I hope you are preparing that big dinner we always had just as ever, because that's what we're over here for, to keep those things we have had for so long, those things that we love so well. The weather here is quite cold now. In fact, the ground is frozen five feet deep, and believe me, I know. The ground is covered in snow, which is the first white Christmas I have seen. So you see, we really have the atmosphere. Yesterday, I got 10 letters in a package. They were really morale builders. But a big surprise was a letter from Mary E. Sutton, and believe me, it was quite a surprise. The package had cookies and candies. They hit the spot, too. We're just eating the last of the candy, some fruitcakes and stuff. Everything is good here for a change. It's hard to keep from getting homesick on such a day, but so far the 12 of us are as happy as larks. But you know how we feel, and you must feel the same. I hope the APO, APO doesn't close today, as I'd like some mail. So, you know, at the very end, he's you know, hoping the APO stays open because he's you know, really, you can just, you can almost feel it in the letter how he's just kind of down. You know, no hot meal, didn't receive mail, but, but mail does come. And so Bradford writes on the 26th, of, you know, his better spirits. December 26, 1944, Germany. Dear Mother, Dad, and Betty, yesterday morning there was a low bunch of boys around this house, but last night the mail came along with good news about the war. All were much happier over it. Everyone got at least one package. Mine was a fruitcake, and it came in handy with this morning's coffee. Of course, we all passed everything around, and that one piece of cake was really good. You should have seen the array of packages, candy, nuts, cakes, everything you want. And everyone is full. I'm afraid the results that might come. Yesterday, I caught up with my correspondence by writing for four hours. Maybe that will take care of my outside writing for a while. I guess you have been reading about the news in this sector. Pretty good the last day or so, I hear. And I assure you that good news comes like candy, very sweet. Especially after a bit of bad news like we had last week. You should see my mustache. It's almost as bushy as Papa's used to be. But before it gets long and gray as that, I hope to have it shaved off and be back at home. I hope some letters come in today. A bit of news from home would be good. I'll go for now. All my love, Billy. Yeah, I caught that part in there about Bradford being worried uh, about the effects of all the Christmas treats. <laughs> uh, and I think any of us that have eaten combat rations for a while and then all of a sudden uh, eaten a real meal or, or specifically eaten sweets and candies that can relate to the havoc it wreaks. Oh my gosh! Yeah, the stomach. Yeah, and, and probably have a good story of of the urgent uh, after effects. And as a matter of fact, and on you know, since we're in the the realm of the Battle of the Bulge, if we go into the Bastogne perimeter, uh, Benny Angelini, he was in uh, Baker Company Five O Second. He actually has one of these experiences. They you know go onto the line and spend about two and a half weeks on the northern part of the Bastogne perimeter. Get relieved on the 3rd of January, and you know, he describes that, hey, we're, we were taken off, got our first hot chow in weeks, and it was spaghetti with white bread and green jello. And what they did is they took the green jello, plopped it on the spaghetti, and it kind of melted into this, you know, goo. Um, and that's what they, you know, just wolfed down. But later that night, they got called back onto the line to relieve the unit that had relieve them so, you know, the German push was uh, causing some problems but as Angelini 
relates that he, as he started to get up and get moving, he felt this sudden urge, and he later described that he's in the middle of the street. He had to pull down his pants while he's firing his rifle, and he, and he said, I was literally shooting and getting engaged in, in a firefight. It's just, you know, one of those things you can easily picture, but you just hope you're never a part of. Hope you're never in that situation. Right, yeah. right. And, uh, you know, back to... They don't show you that in the movies. No, no, they always forget that part. Um, but as we, as we circle back to Bradford, we get to the 26th of December. He does get a hot meal brought up uh, later that day, and, and Bradford w- had the time to write a second letter. And so we get to uh, get a glimpse into what was that... Christmas meal a day after. December 26, 1944, Germany. Dear Mom, Dad, and Betty, another beautiful sunny day in dear old Germany. And does the sun look good for a change? The last 10 or 11 days have been extremely lovely. Snow on the ground, clear skies, and crisp, clean air. It's the kind of day one would really be able to enjoy back at home. After just having finished lunch, I shall attempt to write another couple of pages. We had a very nice meal, creamed potatoes, peas, fried Spam, fruit cocktail, fruit cake, and coffee. One couldn't expect anything better. Whether it is here or there, good food is a morale builder and at times greatly needed. I keep telling you how nice all the fellows in the squad are. I know you'd like to know all of them personally. They're the kind of boys who would live next door or down the street. But since you can't meet each personally, I shall give you a description of one in each letter. First is the squad leader, Staff Sergeant Thomas S. Taylor of Philadelphia. He is a typical Army sergeant, bad mouth, seemingly rough around superiors. He's one of the swellest men you would ever know. His only worry is the safety and welfare of his men, and that's what he is here for. Before the war, he ran a streetcar. I can't exactly picture the man taking up tokens and five-cent pieces as throngs of people enter his car, but that's what he intends to do when he goes back after the war. He's the daddy of the outfit and the mother, too. Anything we want that he can get for us is ours, and what he has, we own. And believe me, anything he asks us to do, which isn't much, we always hop to it. And he doesn't like the unnecessary worker details. So you see, my direct superior is a swell guy, and you have nothing to worry about there. Having finished said character description, I shall knock off and try to get a few minutes sleep before the night's work begins. God bless you and keep you all. Love, Billy. So it's easy to see that not all Christmas experiences are equal uh, while you're deployed. No, not at all. And, you know, if we kind of bounced around the the front there, you know, as the same offensives going around, you would find a, a bunch of different experiences. Uh, Lieutenant Harold D. Wilson, uh, he was I Company 374th Infantry. He wrote his parents back in Rushville, Missouri, just across the river from us. Um, and he said, you know, he describes that we had a grand meal, K rations as usual. And that was really the end of uh, his, his description of Christmas. But what he didn't tell his parents is that on the 25th, his company had actually moved on to the line uh, in Alsace. And as they get in, Bish Weiler, um, they're kind of, you know, scrounging around, seeing what they can find. And they come across this little girl who in exchange for candy would sing Christmas carols. She sang the Tannenbaum Forum, Lily Marlene, another famous uh, or popular song at the time. 
But she also surprised the, the men of the company by singing Horse Vessel Lied, which was the Nazi Party's national <laughs> anthem, and Deutschland über alles, which kind of took some people back there. And uh, the company history, you know, kind of as they talk about Christmas, they, they wrote that a few members of the company found a little beer joint that was still open, and they probably had the best Christmas of anybody in that sector. Uh, there again, go back into Bastogne, though, same day, and, you know, Forrest J. Nickel, B Company, 502nd, um, you know, you asked him about Christmas, you know, we had C rations or, or K rations, you know, it was one of those, um, no formal religious services, but certainly guys were praying in the foxholes, and he says, you know, as a matter of fact, you know, that was the worst day that his company had on the perimeter, um, it was the most ferocious of the German attacks, and uh, you know, another member of the 502nd, Sky Jackson, he actually earns a silver star for knocking out a German tank on Christmas Day. Um, so it, it's just, you know, really everywhere. And, and to kind of illustrate this point, I actually have letters from guys who knew each other. Um, so the first one we're going to hear is from uh, Sergeant John Montemorano that he writes describing his Christmas. Somewhere in Germany, Christmas Day, 25 December, 1944. Dear Helen, received your letter only a couple days ago, so you see it took me some time in reaching you. I suppose after this Christmas rush of packages, we'll receive better service on our letters. Anyway, it was very nice hearing from you. I received a Christmas card from Mickey last week, somewhere in Germany also. The enclosed note said all was going well and would write me a letter soon. Yeah, I've heard about your temper, etc. So I'm strictly going to be on the lookout when I meet you. Bet you can't guess who gave me all the first-hand information. How did your Detroit trip turn out? Hope you had an enjoyable trip. Did you take that boat over? I've heard much about it, and someday I'd like to take that trip. I'd especially enjoy the dancing. Yeah, today is Christmas, but it's more like 4th of July around here. Anyhow, I'm quite happy because I got to attend Mass and also went to confession and communion. Our chaplain said Mass in a civilian Catholic church. They even had a crib or stable all fixed up and evergreens all over the church. Our dinner was also quite nice, considering the circumstances. Turkey, dressing, gravy, potatoes pie, cranberries, apples, candy, and coffee. I sure missed home and my family, though, and hope this is our last Christmas away from home. A plane came in strafing us yesterday, and you should have seen all us hit the floor. I thought, sure, we'd all be through, but our boys are on the ball and shot him down very nearby. I dashed out with my camera and took several snaps. It wasn't a pleasant sight, but serves them right. Hope you were a good girl and Santa didn't neglect you. Write and tell me about it. Getting late now, so I'll say goodnight. With best wishes for a very happy new year. Give my regards to your mom for me, and I'm sure looking forward to meeting you all soon. Real soon. Love, Johnny. So as you heard in that letter, he mentions Mickey. 
And he's referring to Helen, the, the letter's recipient. He's referring to her brother, Private Ed Mikowski, who had been with Montemorano in the 817th tank destroyer um, until he had transferred. And so, you know, you hear Montemorano say, oh, I hope he's having a good Christmas, but I haven't heard from him in a while. Well, the reason is, is that Mikowski was pretty seriously wounded earlier in December. He was a combat medic, was out um, treating some wounded under fire, had his brassard on and was shot in the chest by a sniper. Mm. So he's in an English hospital, but he wrote Helen as well, describing his Christmas Day in an English hospital. Hospital in England, Christmas Day. Dear mom and sis, as a patient here, all of us have been well taken care of. Christmas Eve, we had carol singers made up of hospital enlisted personnel and nurses to entertain us. The American Red Cross presented each of us with a box of assorted items, including candies and items we could use. Each ward received a box of nuts and chocolate, too. Of course, there was midnight mass, but I'm still a bed patient. I'm coming along fine and will in time be up and around. Christmas Day was very nice, too. We had swell food and a menu equal to that at Purdue, plus all sorts of extra trimmings. We all received our wanted goodies, too. Christmas music plus jive recordings were played throughout the day. The ward, too, still glistens in its holiday splendor. The day was almost perfect, yet I kept thinking and wondering what I was doing at home. I really missed you all here, but maybe someday we can enjoy together our one big day of the year. Missed Benny, too, and can imagine what type of day he had in the jungle. Still no mail. I'll write more tomorrow. Bye now. Love, Eddie. And I'm pretty sure, so that's taking us through the Battle of the Bulge. Let's go back to the Pacific again. I'm pretty sure there's some some similar stories there. And I know we're deep diving into World War II, but this is such great uh, just descriptions of life under fire uh, on Christmas. Uh, kind of the, the pros and cons, but we're always trying to get it through. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, that was the war of our grandfathers and so many... 15 million people in uniform that of our age, you knew not probably not one World War II veteran, but you knew a lot. And so, you know, these are just so relatable to a lot of people. Yeah, I think so. But yeah, absolutely. In the Pacific. And we'll go to uh, Lady Island in the Philippine chain. Um, and, and again, it's just it's just some quick, you know, vignettes of just, you know, what different soldiers are feeling. Kind of like what we, we talked about earlier, but George Yates, uh, 182nd Infantry of the Americal Division. I had asked him about Christmas years ago, and he didn't talk about the meals. He didn't talk about letters. He talked about his brother, uh, Joe Yates, who uh, was shot down in November of 44. And George, in the Pacific, half a world away, had just very recently found out that he was indeed missing. So he spent his Christmas really wondering, was his brother alive or dead? Would he ever see him again? Um, and rereading those letters that they had exchanged uh, from half a world away, that was how he spent his Christmas. Um, elsewhere on Lady, uh, Private Fernando Ferrigno, who was with G Company 188th Glider Infantry of the 11th Airborne Division, he's actually killed on Christmas Day. And, you know, that's, you know, we've talked about a lot of the, uh, the positives of the holidays, but kind of the undertone of all this is that largely it's it's still a day it's still a day of combat for many soldiers and if you look at the american battle monuments commission website and they have little brief bios on soldiers who were killed and, and are still buried overseas in world war one and world war two and then they also have all the soldiers who were killed in korea but there's over 1100 soldiers that were 
tracked by the ABMC, so it's you know, about 40% of World War One and World War II deaths. Over 1,100 are killed on Christmas Day. So that's that's not an insignificant number. And then on the home front, you undoubtedly have families that are being notified of a soldier that was killed in early year December of their fate. Um, so it's a holiday, yes, but there's, you know, the, the undertones of war don't let up. Right, right, at home or abroad. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. So let's uh, let's switch gears here uh, and jump again, uh, f- this time from the Pacific in World War II. Let's jump up to Korea, uh, and I think we used that great example at oh the my beginning. Gosh. Wasn't that fantastic? It really was. Uh, I, I can't imagine the morale factor, you know, of hearing those voices. And you think back to Korea in the fifties. We're not talking MP3s here. We're not talking podcasts or recording uh, that you can digitally zip around the world. This, this is recorded on a, on an old-fashioned record. Right. Yeah. And just we who have been deployed recently, you have the ability to call relatively frequently or yeah. Skype or do something. But you know, you hear that little little child in the background who doesn't want to talk. When Gerfin hears this, that might have been the first time he heard that child speak. Because if he was deployed for over a over year prior, yeah, yeah he, that child may not have been speaking when he left. So, it, you know, the, again, the morale factor can't be understated. And just imagine, though, you know, poor Gerfing's on the line and he gets a record. And probably my first thought would be, where am I going to play this record? <laughs> where do I find a record player? <laughs> so, but I, I really hope he did. And uh, I hope he enjoyed it as much as I did. And, I think you did as well, because that was just so neat to to hear. And I'm glad that was saved uh, by his family. But uh, as we talk about Korea, 1951, so 1950, we'll talk about here in a second. But just, you know, the drive north, the retreat south and the, and the stabilization of the lines. Um, Christmas is a little bit more difficult. But 1951, the lines have stabilized. So. By then, the Defense Department is able to ship about 12 million pounds of turkey um, just for Korea. And so that's, that's a pretty good, uh, pretty good indicator of that supply line, again, being able to, to work into the, uh, into the peninsula there. Uh, one you know, Army Sergeant, uh, Bill Shepard, he, he wrote home and he says, yeah, <laughs> so full, I can hardly move. He said, you know, typical Army, feast or famine, but, but today we had the feast. Uh, which is a pretty neat uh, segment there. Yeah, and so 1950, right, different logistics, not only sustain uh, morale, but also preserve life. Yeah, this was not the Christmas that had been planned. We actually were, we, we the Army uh, at the time, was in the middle of the Home by Christmas offensive, which did not get the Army home by Christmas uh, because the Chinese intervened in the Korean War and start pouring over the, the Yalu and, and assisting the North Koreans and, and really starting to drive the Americans back. And, you know, one of the most famous scenes you get out of this is the Chosen Reservoir fight and the breakout by the Marines and the Army. Um, and this culminates in the evacuation of Hung Nam, or what's also known as the Christmas Miracle. So over 12 days, you've got 
about 100,000 UN forces and a little over anywhere from 85 to 105,000 uh, North Korean refugees are trying to be evacuated out of this port, most by sea, some by air. Um, you have a victory ship, the SS Meredith Victory, which is configured to carry about 12 passengers along with the crew. Somehow, um, and we probably know soldiers that we've served with that are able to do this, they retrofit this ship to hold 12,000 mm. refugees and get them out of the peninsula. It's just an amazing feat. Twelve to 12,000. Yeah, it's it just, you know, one of those things you just would love to see how they made that happen. Ingenuity and innovation of soldiers. A absolutely. And, you know, out of that 100,000 refugees, as we talked about the life-saving portion of this uh, uh, operation, obviously you had those UN soldiers that are able to be evacuated and, and fight another day, but you also have 100,000 uh, refugees that are saved. And, you know, estimates are that up to 1 million descendants of those refugees are alive today because of this operation, mm. uh, which is just, you know, it, it's really a, it is the Christmas miracle that you're able to save these lives and they're able to um, carry on their own family traditions and, and remember this. And, you know, within that group, uh, it includes the current South Korean president, Moon Jae-in. His parents were two of those refugees that were evacuated out of Hong Nam. So uh, just a great story of perseverance and, and survival uh, that comes out of really a, a dark time in the Army's history. But with that hope uh, that we mentioned in the beginning, uh, I think all things are possible. Absolutely. And you know, Harry Truman, when he gets the phone call from Omar Bradley, it's 1 a.m. in the morning, Christmas morning. General Bradley calls and, and kind of outlines the operation that it's completed. And you know, we've, we've done pretty well. And President Truman says, I thank God for the success of the Hung Nam operation, and it is the best Christmas present I ever had. So, Kyle, thanks for walking us through the history, and, and thanks again for joining us uh, on this first part of a two-part episode. Uh, before we let you go today, any closing or final thoughts? Yeah, well, first, thank you so much for having me, and I, I really look forward to part two as well. Um, but this is my favorite part of military history because, you know, you look at Christmas 1944, as we were talking about, and you got the map there, you got Bastogne that's surrounded by red arrows, and, and you know, that's typically what we think about are those big arrow movements. But as we got a chance to drill down and see those individual soldiers that were making history but at the end, they were just individuals, and they had their hopes for a Merry Christmas. They had their hopes to survive and, and make it home for the next Christmas. And so, you know, this was fun because it was getting the chance to talk about my passion. Um, and we got a chance to look at it, uh, I think, through their eyes and their stories, uh, which to me speaks to uh, resilience. And I was just on a conference call the other day with uh, – Angus Fletcher, who's a renowned professor at uh, The Ohio State University. And uh, we were talking about the ability of stories uh, to heal wounds, uh, but, you know, to heal those mental wounds that we have. And I think there's a tale of resiliency here. And you've got a chance uh, to intimately connect with Billy Bradford. Right. 
Yeah, Billy Bradford and I, we knew each other for about 10 years before he passed away just this last year, and George Yates, too. Um, and those connections, they, they were wonderful friendships, but also provided great perspective when I was overseas. Um, that, you know, I, I really wasn't going through this alone because they had experienced it beforehand, and they were providing the same encouragement through letters that they had received at the time, 65 years prior. And, you know, it's just, it's very special to develop those relationships. Um, but as you talked about resiliency, you know, episode two, I'm really excited for because, you know, all these men now are, are gone that we heard letters from and they live on through those letters. But episode two, we're going to hear live from people that, are still with us that experienced history and we'll see how they felt compared to these letters. And this is not the great thing about this is when we're all home with our families at Christmas, it's an opportunity to share and become better connected uh, with our families by sharing our own experiences. Yeah. So uh, I would encourage our listeners to go out and uh, find some people to talk to. Uh, again, it builds resiliency uh, both in you and the other parties. Uh, find some veterans and uh, have a Merry Christmas. Thank you. Thanks for listening again to To Be Published. Decorations are on a green Christmas tree.